0: For over 10 years, someone in our congregation, a guy named Dan, uh, organized an event for the bankers, lawyers, owners, and CEOs of one of the big six accounting firm's major clients. It was a small but high-end affair. There were few expenses spared, and the speakers and entertainers that they brought in, most of them were household names. One year, as a sidelight, they also brought in a guy named Denny Dent, who is a performance artist who actually passed away about 10 years ago. He would paint pictures of rock stars uh, on large canvases while one of their songs was being played. So Mick Jagger, Bruce Springsteen, Bono, Carlos Santana, others. He also did people like Albert Einstein and Ben Franklin. Really interesting guy. So this one night after a speech by former Secretary of State Colin Powell, uh, it's Denny's turn to go, and they're running late. So Dan goes up to him and says, Denny, we, you were going to do four paintings. We only have time for three. So, uh, so that's fine. So Denny paints uh, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, and Elton John and brought the house down. Huge hit. And so as he's taking his bows, it was going so well that Dan jumps up and says, You know, Denny, we, we only had time for three. We're going to make time for four. And Denny kind of stops and says, well, I, I don't know if I have another canvas. He says, well, of course you have another canvas. There's kind of this little little friction going on on stage. And finally Dan says, look, Denny, we paid you for four paintings. We want our four paintings. And so he says, okay, okay, I'll do the fourth painting. And then he adds this. He says, you know what, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it a little differently than the last three. This time, no brushes, just my hands, and four cans of paint. Okay, I figure this guy's pretty good. We'll see what he can do. So he puts on a white tuxedo jacket, gets up there, dips his hands in paint, puts on the song Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix, and things begin to unwind. So everyone's watching. However, before, as they're all fascinated, as they watched Mick, David, and Elton come together, this picture doesn't come together. And at some point it becomes pretty obvious that it, it isn't working, and the energy in the room begins to fade. The painting, uh, according to Dan, was awful. It was, it was just ugly, and it got really weird and uncomfortable. And at one point, uh, Denny stopped. The mu- music stops, and he turns to Dan, and he goes, this was a bad idea. I, I should never have agreed to this. And he walks off the stage. The place was silent. Dan said that before that moment, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, the energy in the room was a 12. After that moment, it was a negative 5. He said that for—I don't know why—he said that there were people actually crying in the room. It was that sort of just weird and awkward and uncomfortable, and no one really knows what to do. Uh, Dan said he just sat at his table and, and just kind of stood there. And for, after about a minute, which seemed like an hour, Denny walks back on stage. Casually walks over and says, what's the matter? You don't like my painting? He takes the painting, he flips it upside down, and in an instant, you could see Jimi Hendrix. And he puts, grabs a few more colors and throws it on there, and all of a sudden, there he is. Uh, the place went crazy. The music comes back on. The place goes wild. Dan said, you know, all the people, of all the people that he has ever had at one of these events, over 14 years of doing this, He says there was never a moment to match that moment. And we actually have this painting here. Uh, We thought about bringing it on stage. We thought maybe not the thing we're looking for on Easter Sunday. Maybe not the vibe (laughs) we're going for with Jimmy uh, on stage on Easter. But it is in the hallway uh, in the B building if you want to take a closer look at it. I tell that story because there is a sense in which the resurrection of Jesus is the event that puts life right side up. It makes everything clear. It moves us from before to after. It validates all of the aspects of Jesus' life, his teaching, his claims. Now, if you've been attending Christ Church recently, you know that we've been going through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, they're They're kind of like biographies, although they're not fully biographies because they don't give a full detailed account of all of Jesus's life. They're written with a specific agenda to persuade us that Jesus is God, that we should follow him, and that his death changes everything. Each gospel uh, tells this roughly the same story but from a different angle and for a different audience. So Matthew, who was a tax collector turned apostle, He wrote for Jewish readers. Mark, uh, which was likely written first, and Matthew and and Luke used Mark to to write their Gospels. Uh, He was aimed towards Roman readers. John was written last. He lived the longest, and his was aimed towards the Greeks. Luke was writing mostly for Gentiles, for non-Jews. He was a medical doctor. He was an amateur historian, travel companion to the Apostle Paul, who we'll hear about later on in the sermon. He tells us that he is writing a chronological account uh, for a man named Theophilus, who we believe was a Greek official in the Roman Empire who was a new Christian, eager to learn all that he could about Jesus and was funding Luke's efforts to visit all the sites, interview as many eyewitnesses as he could. So as a a church, we're working our way through the book of Luke, and as we go, we get a, 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 a more clear picture of who Jesus is and why he matters. And this morning... I wanna show how his death and resurrection are the events that tie everything together. They effectively turn the picture upside down so that suddenly everyone can see what's going on. And then I wanna talk about why that matters to us. So we've jumped ahead to Luke 24. And by the time we get to Luke 24, we're not exactly working with a blank canvas. A whole lot of the story has played out. So the the roughly five-sixths of the Bible that comes before Luke 24 has given us a lot of context, and we need context in order to understand what's going on. Trying to understand Jesus uh, by starting with just Luke 24 or even by starting with the Gospels is kind of like coming in most of the way through a movie and trying to figure out what the movie's about. You'll pick up a few things, but you're not gonna get the full picture. And that's not a perfect illustration because there's a lot more going on in the Bible that can ever be layered into a movie. You can read the Bible over and over your whole life and still see new things. In fact, you should read the Bible over and over again in order to really get the full storyline. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It still is, uh, but it's potentially also the most misunderstood book of all time. A lot of people own Bibles. A lot of people have read parts of the Bible, but not everyone necessarily gets the whole story. After all, it's not just one book. It's a collection of 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,600 years, three different languages on three different continents. Many people mistakenly see it as just a set of rules and some nice stories. It is not. It is really the story of how a loving God has continually showed his faithfulness to his people, and how he lovingly desires to transform their hearts to be in relationship with him. And the simplest way, perhaps, to talk about the story of the Bible is by talking about it as a two-act play. Act one would be the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Act two would be the New Testament. And if you went to the Chicago Theater to see a performance of the Bible played out, you'd, you'd hopefully arrive early with enough time to grab your playbill and to look through the list of actors and to see... You know, things like the, this, the role of Moses tonight will be played by, or the role of Mike Woodruff will be played by Siler Thomas, things like that. Um, but it would contain a brief summary about everything that happened leading up to Act 1, Scene 1. What we would say is the case here is Genesis 1 through 11 is sort of the, the prelude. And, and the big takeaways from there is that there's a loving, all-powerful God who created everything. And as, as a final act of creation, He made us in his own likeness and for his glory. We exist for him and not the other way around. And he left us in charge. Now, sin enters the world through a simple act of selfishness and disobedience. And the result of this is that we're cut off from God. We are cursed. We are spiritually dead. But as soon as this happens... Genesis 3, God makes a promise to send help. He says that he will send someone to defeat evil. A few other things happen here. I'm shortening the story, but the big question you're wondering now is who will be that one who will make things right, who will be able to fix things to defeat evil, restore broken humanity? That's what you're thinking about as the curtain rises on Act 1, Scene 1, which would begin in Genesis 12. The first person you see there is a shepherd named Abraham walking around in northern Africa when God makes him an offer. If Abraham will leave his home and go where God sends him, God will give him land, will give him descendants, and bless the world through him. The clear implication is that the one who will defeat evil will come through this man's bloodline. Abraham says yes, and in the rest of act one, scene one, We watch as he struggles to have a child. He finally does have this child, Isaac, and something very odd happens. He is instructed by God to take the child to a mountaintop several days' walk away and to sacrifice him. Now, God intervenes and stops the sacrifice, but it's a memorable moment as we hang on to the end of this this scene, which is the patriarchs. The next scenes are the exodus, where the Jews escape from Egyptian captivity and, and God gives them the law through Moses, the eventual reconquest of the Holy Land in the book of Joshua, the time of the judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Then the next scene is where the 12 tribes are unified under a king. First Saul, then David, then Solomon. And things are going well here. In fact, God makes a promise to David that his chosen one will sit on his throne. Solomon builds a temple where the presence of God can be felt in a unique way. But surprisingly, tragically, after Solomon's death, Israel falls apart. The nation splits in two. Northern ten tribes head down a path of rebellion uh, that eventually leads to their destruction. And the southern two tribes are later overrun by the Babylonians. They're taken into captivity. That is exile, scene seven. And then the Jews live in Babylon for 70 years before they return in scene eight. That's where things are when the curtain falls for a brief 400-year intermission. Now, I'm skipping over a whole lot, not saying anything about the wisdom books, things like Psalms and Proverbs, or the prophetic books, although I will mention that in just a minute. The point is, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see a number of themes that emerge. One of the themes is that sin is a huge problem in spite of God's faithfulness to his people, they turn their backs on him. Sin is a capital offense. This is what's behind all the sacrifices that you read about. When someone has fallen short, caused a break in their relationship with God, something or someone has to die. So an innocent animal dies instead of you. More broadly though, thematically, we get this idea that God is a loving, a patient, a faithful God even when his people are not. And just before the curtain closes on act one, we actually get this little cliffhanger. If you know the structure of a two-act play, generally what happens is at the end of act one, there's some kind of a teaser or a cliffhanger or something that happens, foreshadowing, that makes you excited to go back and find out what happens in act two. And we actually get that in some of the prophetic literature that was written about the time of the exile we hear about something new that is coming. In Jeremiah 31:33, we hear about this new covenant. It's written in the exile, and God says this to his people, "'This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel "'after that time,' declares the Lord. "'I will put my law in their minds "'and write it on their hearts. "'I will be their God, and they will be my people.'" God had established covenants with Noah and with uh, Abraham and with Moses. And and what he's saying is, I'm I'm doing, I have a new covenant now. The the covenant that, that he made with Moses was to give the law. And he says, no longer will the law be on stone. This law will be on their hearts. And I will be with them in a unique way as their God. From Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. This other promise that God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There's something brand new coming, a new way that God is choosing to interact with his people. This heart of stone that we seem to have been born with, God will remove it and replace it with a heart that is malleable. The Bible actually indicates what research has shown, that we are born with a predisposition to selfishness and rebellion. This week I was listening to a radio show, and <clears throat> they were, the, the guy was interviewing a professor at Yale who has studied uh, development in babies. And the interviewer asked him, so when do you think people turn bad? The assumption being that you know, everyone's good and at some age we turn bad. And there was this really long pause in the interview <clears throat> where the professor kind of didn't know what to say. And then he says, I don't really think of that as the right question. Uh, to a large extent, we start off bad. We start off with these powerful, selfish impulses. And then he goes on to say, to some extent, the most evil adult in the world is just a two-year-old who never grew up, a two-year-old who never managed to get control over his impulses. I would say that at the heart of each of us is that selfish two-year-old who never grew up. Left to our own devices, we stay that way. God promises Then, at the end of Act 1, he promises to change our hearts to do something about that selfishness. Hold on to that thought. Curtain has gone down. There's radio silence for 400 years where no one speaks for God. The lights dim on in the lobby. You go back to your seats, and the curtain rises, and it's all about this person, Jesus. Uh, As you know, he had a miraculous birth, We don't get much about his early life, just that he is about his father's business, learning about who God is. And then he's an adult. He goes to the desert to pray for 40 days. He goes toe-to-toe with Satan, and he wins. And then he launches his public ministry, and he emerges as a rabbi, but not like the other rabbis. He's, He's different. He's saying and doing a series of amazing things. He claims to be the Messiah in the fulfillment of prophecy. In a series of miracles, he demonstrates his power over sickness, over evil, over nature, and over death. And we just recently finished an overview of this very famous sermon that he gave, the Sermon on the Plain, which has been the sort of cornerstone of ethics for the last 2,000 years. The book of Luke goes on, and in future sermons, we'll be looking at more miracles, more profound teaching. We'll watch as the lights go on for the disciples and as the Uh, tensions mount between Jesus and the religious rulers. Well, this past week, starting last Sunday, we jumped ahead. We skipped to the last week of Christ's life, which begins with him parading into Jerusalem as a king. It includes his claim to be the new temple, where he says, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And it also includes his own claim to be the Passover lamb. So at the Passover meal, the night that he was betrayed, he leaves the 1,000-year-old script that everyone is expecting in order to say, this bread is my body. This cup is my blood shed for you. We see Jesus claiming, in fact, that all of the events leading up to this moment from Act 1 are pointing forward to him. And remember that event back in Genesis where God makes this unthinkable request to Abraham to tie up his son, offer him as a sacrifice. Well, even that was about him. It all falls into place when Jesus dies on that same mountain, when God the Father takes the life of God the Son. The command to tie up Isaac was, was foreshadowing. It was a setup to see how unthinkable it would be to ask a father to sacrifice his son. And yet, that is what happens with the death of Christ. So, the very next day, he's put to death on trumped-up charges. All appear to be, appears to be lost. But from the passage that was read at the beginning of the service, we see that Jesus does not stay dead. He rises. And in the days and months following his resurrection, it's finally clear what's happening the long story that's been written where we've been waiting to see who will be the one to defeat death, the cliffhanger that we hear about at the end of Act 1, all of that is culminating in Jesus Christ. All the deaths of innocent animals that have been pointing ahead, they've all been pointing ahead to his death. The new covenant that Jeremiah spoke about has now come into effect. And so when we place our faith in him, we have our sins taken away from us. God no longer counts our sins against us. And we enter into this new covenant. We have this heart of stone removed from us. We're placed with a heart of flesh. And the Spirit of God takes up residence in our hearts. All of those ways that we thought we could never change is now possible. This is is not just a story. This is not make-believe. This is this is real. Christianity is not just a, a moral code. It's the story of a God who changes lives, who transforms hearts, who sees who we are before, and because of Jesus' death, death resurrection, and ascension, the pouring out of his spirit, everything after is different. So there's actually more to Act 2. So the second half of the New Testament... Is all about what happens after Jesus rises and ascends into heaven, and the Apostle Paul becomes a prominent player there. And what we see in this person, Paul, is a dramatic playing out of this very thing, this very transformation, this very act of the the heart of stone being removed and putting in a heart of flesh. Most of you know this guy's story, but he was a a God-fearing Jewish man. He became a Jewish leader, and He desired nothing more than to please God. And as far as he could tell, what that meant was for him, it meant fighting against whatever new pseudo-Jewish cult would pop up. And one of those groups were the followers of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. So Saul, as he was known then, he did what any good religious leader would do. He went around putting to death anyone who might be opposing the one true God. And he was good at it. What he didn't bargain for, of course, was that he was completely wrong about Jesus. And so as he's on his way from one anti-Christian rally to the next, he is greeted with a loud voice from heaven saying, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? Hoping that the answer is not Jesus. Please be anybody but Jesus. And turns out, it's Jesus. And what happens to Paul? Well, he goes from being the greatest opponent Christianity to the greatest proponent. The transformation that happens in his heart from hatred of Christians to defender of Christians is nothing short of miraculous. It would be the same thing as if the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan became the greatest civil rights proponent in history. It's one of the most powerful stories of transformation that I know about. It's a story that has actually encouraged me in times when I've doubted whether this thing is real, you read the Bible, and you, sometimes you just go, eh, "Really, though? is this really happening? Is this really something that is true?" I think about this guy, Paul, and I think about his transformation, complete 180, and I go, "Well, what else could it be? What else could have happened to this man except that he had an encounter with the risen. Lord, There's really only one plausible explanation. It's that God is real. And God loved this man who went around killing Christians, this man who claimed to be the greatest sinner that there ever was. And if God loves this man, then God loves you and your rebellious little two-year-old self, and he loves me and my little rebellious two-year-old self. God desires you to have your sins paid for through the sacrifice of Jesus. And he invites you into act three. See, there's actually a third act in the play. All these stories from from the Bible, those are just stories about people, people like you and me. And we are part, we're living out right now act three. It's our opportunity to be invited into this story many of you here this morning have been walking with God for a while. Some of you might be hearing this for the very first time. And the invitation is to you. God is saying, I am inviting you into this story. Give me your heart of stone, your insecurities, your failures, your addictions, your brokenness, and and maybe even your successes that, that you've been trying to fill your heart with and you're realizing it is not enough. God says, give give that all to me. I will give you a new heart. Give me your before, and I will change your after into something that you never thought possible. These befores and afters have been happening ever since Jesus was raised from the dead, and some of the greatest privileges of my life have been watching people, especially young people, Give their lives to God and and watch him radically transform lives. This is possible for you as well.